0: Clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway.
1: I'm Clayton Hunt, and I'm John Ash. With us today is Tommy McClung. Tommy is co-founder and CEO of Release. He was the CTO of TrueCar for a number of years, and he is a software engineer by trade and multiple-time entrepreneur.
2: Welcome, Tommy. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys.
3: Before we jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a deeper introduction to yourself? You know, perhaps start with. Uh, Talking about how you got started in the industry.
2: Well, you got to go back uh, twenty plus years. I I uh, started as a firmware engineer working on low level uh, systems management software back in the days of the blade server. Um, I don't know if you guys remember blade servers, but it was essentially the cloud before the cloud. Um, you know, it was how many computers could you jam into a, a rack? Um, And actually worked on some really cool kind of Intel x86 architecture stuff. But predominantly, the focus of that was uh, how do you make developers productive when they have thousands of servers? Um, And this was prior to, you know, the cloud, AWS, even prior to VMs, really. It was bare metal deployments, uh, a lot of RPM installs, uh, Pixie booting, uh, Windows deployments uh, of hundreds of thousands of servers. I had a, a fun Um, customer who had a software rejuvenation feature, which was basically they had to restart once a day so that their uh, Windows machines would come back up. This is in the days of like Windows 2000, I'm pretty sure. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I was a software engineer um, working on solving kind of how do you make developers productive on uh, Blade servers back in the early 2000s. Went into sales engineering uh, for that company, which I thought was a pretty cool hybrid between um, software development and uh, getting my feet wet in the business side of things. I uh, got to travel around the world, you know, talking to different companies about what they needed blades for to solve their problems. Um, we ended up selling that company. Uh, that company's name was RLX Technologies, got bought by Hewlett Packard. Uh, that really RLX got my, my, my my interest around startups. Um, and a couple of good close colleagues of mine and I started a company by the name of I am safer, which was a parental controls company. Um, that was, this was like right when MySpace space was at its peak, uh, and a lot of chatter was going on online and parents didn't really know what was going on. So there was also this show on, um, on TV called to catch a predator. I don't know if you guys ever remember this. But they used to set up these sting operations to catch weirdos that like to talk to kids. And a good friend of mine was like, hey, do you guys think you could build something that would uh, detect when that's going on? So we built a company called I Am Safer, and it basically scanned instant messages, low level pack, packet sniffing with like Win PCAP. And uh, what it's called, I think, I don't know if it's called Wireshark still, but it changed to Wireshark. Um, and looking for patterns of things that as a parent you would care about. Um, that was a crazy story of things that we dealt with there. Uh, we ended up selling that to a company in the UK. Um, I then decided that for some reason I had bought a car and I it, buying the car kind of irritated me. And I said, hey, I'm a software engineer. I'll go solve that. So we started a company by the name of CarWoo. Um, and that's the company that was acquired by TrueCar. Uh, where I became the CTO. And really, the idea for what we have now kind of stems from uh, a lot of the things we learned in managing. And I say we because I've t- I always talk about my co-founders and I. We've, we've worked together since RLX, so it's always we when I talk about this stuff. Um, we uh, you know, walked into an organization that it was 12, 13 years old, had a, you know, 300 engineers, and productivity and velocity there was, was really low. Um and there's a lot of reasons two physical data centers they were doing a lot of stored procedure stuff in SQL Server 2008 this was by the way it's 2015 um so they were a little bit behind on their technology and uh, hadn't really migrated to the cloud yet and so you know I I was kind of the squeaky wheel there and said hey I think we can do this better um and there was a heavy dependence on environments at that business uh meaning you had to have environments for developers, you had to have environments for staging, for testers. Uh, local development was really hard because you had a lot of different services that you couldn't really run on your laptop, so they had to be all over the place. Uh, and then we also had uh, partners. We had about 300 partners that needed to do like a white label integration, um, and the environments were needed for that. So it was, it was a constant battle to kind of keep that whole ecosystem up and running. So in order to get a product deployed, it literally took months um, because you had to kind of roll it out amongst all of these various different uh, components. And it just seemed like a lot. It was a lot of work, a lot of uh, people involved in, in making that go. And they weren't really leveraging the cloud yet. So um, ended up you know, complaining about it enough, I guess, where they said, hey, why don't you come in here and fix this? Spent uh, about two and a half years um, as the CTO working on a migration to the cloud. And then building an internal environment management system. And and this is pre, you know, kind of like Docker and Kubernetes really being ready yet. Um, It wasn't really ready to be kind of prime time. Um, And so it was, you know, it was kind of like a a very bespoke way to manage um, ephemeral environments that you might need for development, staging environments for QA and production, and then production ultimately. So... The reality of that was it actually worked really well. You know, it kind of took that organization from bottlenecking around you know, one or very few staging environments to everybody having all that they wanted. And at the moment that that was going on, you know, my co-founders today and I kind of talked and we were like, wow, it's amazing that nothing in the, in the world exists to solve this problem. Um, and it's a hard problem to solve. And every DevOps person you talk to says, you know, this is you know, kind of the, the holy grail of what, you know, DevOps is about is making environments that are productive for their engineering teams. But You know, we saw it work. And so we really were enthusiastic about the concept of bringing that capability to anyone. And, you know, we kind of coined it um, environments as a service after we had, you know, kind of worked on the product for a while and, and brought it to market. But it's a, you know, it's a generic platform that allows you to bring your application and uh, quickly and easily spin up environments on demand for whatever purpose, development, uh, ephemeral environments for you know, preview environments for branches that you might be working on, staging environments, production. Single tenant environments uh, are pretty interesting too. You've got customers now who, you know even in production, they don't want to co-mingle in multi-tenant environments. They want to create separate instances for every customer. We see a lot of demand for that, which is really cool. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a it's, it's been a fun ride. It's very different to build a generic platform that anybody can use uh, versus just one that one company can use. So we've we've had a lot of really interesting challenges to deal with along the way. And um, they, you know, the good news is, you know, when customers use it, they their product velocity goes up, their overhead of managing all of this goes down, and ultimately, developers have a better experience. Um, you know, you kind of get a, a uh, an ecosystem that you would get at one of the mega companies, you know, like a Google or Facebook for smaller companies. You don't have to do the investment to to build out that kind of platform as a service, if you want to call it that internally.
3: Gotcha. Yeah, um, this sounds really, really interesting. Um, before we jump into re- release a little bit more deeply, would you, you know, what what is your CEO now? What what is it like to have transitioned into a role like CEO? Um, and do you miss being a software developer and getting into the the code and all that sort?
2: of thing? Oh, a hundred percent. So it's funny, like my career. If you go back, I was a software engineer. I was the VP of Engineering at a startup. I then became the CEO of a startup, the, the automotive startup, and. The very beginning of a, of a company that you're a, a CEO of, you're a software engineer. Like, all of our co-founders are all technical. So I was an engineer at the automotive startup. And actually, when we came uh, to release and we started it, I, I you know the CEO job in the first year is you're still a software engineer. So for the first year or maybe year and a half of release, I, I wrote all the front-end React code um, JavaScript, which I didn't have any, any experience in React... Prior to that, um, but I'm like the kind of guy that's like, oh, all right, if it needs to be done I'll go, I'll go do it so honestly it, it it's the most fun period of a startup is that very very beginning period where you're just bringing the ideas to life you don't really know exactly what the product should do you know look like look and feel, but you know where you're trying to go it's three people in a room spending twelve hours a day just hacking. Um, and so for the very first year of release, I was a software engineer and CEO. Um, so that part of it is the best part of being a CEO. Uh, once you transition to, okay, we're going to hire, we've raised money. We did Y Combinator, um, you know, the startup accelerator in December of 2020 and raised our first round of funding in the middle of that. And at that point, you know, it starts to become less about me writing software and more about, Hey, how are we going to build a company? How are we going to hire people? You know, you have investors that want their money back. Uh, well, not just their money back. They want a big return at some point. So you, you know, you're trying to really build a company at that point. So it's a different challenge. Um, it's, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, everything is a is a bigger, a longer time frame to see what you've built. Uh, when you're writing software every day, you can deploy something and see something in the world. When you're the CEO of a company, you know it's six months, twelve months before you see anything you know really come out the other side of of magnitude that you'd be proud of. So, I think that's the hardest part. That was the same problem with being like the CTO of a public company. It's you know such long term projects and goals that from the time you start something to the time you finish, it's years, not hours or days. So. I think I, the, the immediacy of software engineering is, is in my opinion, one of the best parts about it. You, you spend time and energy, and you can see it hopefully work. You know, you get it deployed, and probably have some bugs or whatever you got to fix, but you get that kind of turnaround, immediate feedback. Um, I think that's the thing that I miss the most.
0: All right, so diving into a little bit of what what is release, you you, you kind of talked a little bit about the 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 catalyst for how how it came about, but for, for the day-to-day user, or, or who, who, who is release for?
2: Release is for any company that uh, needs environments uh, on demand. So generally, it's software development teams that um, don't want to bottleneck around staging. Uh, the software engineer uses it in their normal course of business. So they're writing their code. They do a pull request in an environment with all the links and URLs to their environment automatically are created um, for you and injected right into the PR. So if you need to test, you need to run automation against it. You need to preview those features with QA, with your design team, uh, or just collaborate with other engineers in a shared environment. You, You have that. So for software engineers, it's, you know, highly beneficial because now you have the, you know, I don't have to wait for staging problem. Uh, I don't have to worry that if I break something on staging, I take the whole company down until it comes back up. Um, For QA teams, you know, they need it for all sorts of reasons. You know, if you're testing something and you want to try it in isolation, feel free. Performance tests, you know, you can run those against the environments. Um, The other, you know, kind of stakeholders in this are kind of the DevOps infra engineers. Uh, You know, they're usually... um, you know, on the hook to keep up with the demands of the engineering team. Like if if an engineer wants to add a new service, they want to try a new piece of infrastructure. uh, Usually that, you know, flows through a ticket and an infrastructure DevOps engineer will do it and, you know, get it up for you in a period of time. Um, With release, there's, we, we created an abstraction. We call it an application template, which is essentially a YAML file today. We've got good ideas for that in the future that allow you to define your services, the data you need, the infrastructure you need. And once you have that template, it will automatically provision that within your AWS GCP and soon to be Azure account. Um, so that as a developer, if you want to tinker with this, you don't necessarily have to you know, bother the DevOps team with things you're, you're just playing around with. The DevOps uh, teams usually use us to automate a lot of the you know requests that they get from engineers. They're, they're able to create these templates for their applications. Developers can go on their merry way. They don't really need to have the uh, infrastructure teams involved. And uh, the organization basically has infinite environments for whatever the need is uh, along the way. Um, so if you're an organization that uses Agile, it mirrors very well to Agile. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, if you have PRs that you use along, uh, along the way and you have collaboration amongst teams, you know, those, those preview environments, ephemeral environments are really useful for that. And then if you have, um, you know, like for instance, a good example of a use case that we had recently was we had to do a, a pen test for ourselves. Um, and the pen test organization was like, hey, we need an environment to test this against. We had work going on with our normal environments. We just fired up a new environment for them to do pen testing on performance testing and it doesn't impact anyone else. So I think one of the insights that we had from our days at Truecar was you know, if you have the ability to spin up an environment for whatever need you have, um you start coming up with all sorts of different reasons to use environments. Um and you know, it, it, the organization gets more nimble, gets to test things in a different way, uh has the ability to go a lot faster on multiple dimensions at the same time. That's usually the organization that wants to use us is, hey, we, we, we value high productivity, high efficiency out of our engineering teams, and we want the, the developers to have a wonderful experience. But the lift to build that in-house is really difficult and expensive and requires you know an army of DevOps people to make it happen. So that's generally uh, the, the customer use cases that we deal with
3: uh and you kind of answered one of my questions that I had in there but maybe you can go into a little bit more depth you're not running these environments yourself you're not like hosting them you're you're spinning these things up in a public cloud what so this is more of like a just a templating um ability to like uh drive those and and create those things based on a template
2: yeah i mean usually um you know you'll have your infrastructure as code whether that's terraform pulumi um you know, AWS, CDK, uh, Microsoft's flavor of that. Um, you have, uh, you know, your Docker containers. Uh, usually most of our customers have containerized. Um, so there's all the parts, right? You have all the parts. You have your CI/CD pipelines. You have all these parts. Um, re- the abstraction template that release has uh, kind of orchestrates all of those things to create the fully formed environment. There isn't really one... You know, we looked, like we looked to say, oh, could you use Docker Compose for this? And Docker Compose does parts of it, right? It'll spin up your services. But what if you need to load in a large data set into your environment? Like, what do you need to do? What if you need a kinesis uh, stream or you need Elasticsearch, right? Like those things aren't really contemplated in any reasonable way. So there has to be other methodologies and, and release kind of acts as the glue to like orchestrate the creation of all of those things. So you can fire up your Terraforms and build your infrastructure. You can bring your containers up in a Kubernetes namespace. That entire environment is now namespaced, right? So all of those containers that you've created, plus the infrastructure, all of the networking and routing that's required to bring all of those together, release handles. And then we inject into that namespace all of the environment variables that you need that make that environment unique. So if you have a front end, a back end, a database, those might come up on ephemeral host names, right? Because they're being created out of thin air. And we provide the ability to map all of those environment variables to the, the environment variables that would be in your code. So when you bring these environments up, they work out of the box, right? You're not having to go in and change a bunch of stuff to make them go. Um, so the secret sauce of release is the orchestration and gluing of all of those things together. And that application template is the, is the way that it brings it together. Um, and it's. I mean, it's relative. it's as simple as you can make it <laughs> and, and no more.
3: Yeah, no, that's pretty fantastic. Uh, uh, it, are, are there limitations as to like what those environments can look like? I mean, you were mentioning Kubernetes and Docker containers and all that sort of stuff. But like, what if I wanted to run things on like VMs or like IS or anything like that?
2: You can absolutely do it. And we have customers that do that. Our main orchestration engine, like if you have your containers... And we detect your Docker files. We'll spin them up and we'll put them into a Kubernetes cluster, and so you don't have to worry about that substrate. But if you like, we had a customer the other day that want, wanted to run it in ECS in uh, AWS. They didn't want it to run in Kubernetes. They just had Terraforms that they used that spun up the Kubernetes or the the ECS cluster, and then the deployment of those containers went into the ECS cluster. So, you know, I think our thinking is that like most organizations have some approach to all of the components that they want to bring up. And so we don't want to replace that. We just want to bring it all together to make it reproducible over and over and over again. So if you've invested in Terraform, Pulumi, whatever, that investment is still incredibly valid. And we just leverage what you already had um, and then bring the orchestration platform to get to the table so that you can, you know, click a button, reproduce, do a pull request, reproduce. Uh, that that's really the the kind of brains behind what what release does underneath the covers
3: um, what about in the situation where you maybe don't have all of that that put together so you don't have a huge investment in you're just getting started do you, do you, do you need to like build terraform templates out or whatever but like okay so i've got a docker compose and a docker file that i want but i i need to get somewhere that's good enough
2: that that's good enough yeah. Then then we'll orchestrate that. We'll fire it up in a Kubernetes cluster. You know, it, initially it was kind of interesting, like when we, when we first started working on the project, how to do this was a big question. And Kubernetes was finally getting to the place where it's like, okay, this is working. It's functional. Like this was like early, mid-2019 and it was starting to kind of catch on. So we started playing around with it and it has a lot of things that make, you know, bringing applications up, namespacing them. Uh, you know, the ingress stuff that you can do with routing is all really useful, but it's hard. Like that part, like you got to get really good at. So the first thing we did originally was it, you you just brought a Docker compose file. And then we would translate that Docker compose into all the requisite Kubernetes manifests that are needed to run that within a namespace in Kubernetes. That still is possible. You just come in, tell us the repo, we'll detect your Docker files. if If those are you know, well formed. We'll just fire it up. We'll deploy those containers into a Kubernetes namespace, and your app should be up and running. Usually, a few tweaks to environment variables, and you're off. You're off to the races. So, um, you know, if you have a much more complex, I think, you know, if you think about the complexity of an application, most, you know, traditional web apps have a front end, a back end, and a database. You know, if you just want to start with that and get going out of the box. You can go to uh, github.com slash release, uh, sorry, awesome-release. And we have examples of like all sorts of different kind of common frameworks that you might just want to spin up. Take one of those, fork it, um, and off to the races, uh, including a bunch of .NET examples and other things that, that we have in there. So if you are just starting out, it tends to function a bit like a better Heroku, actually. So if you're just wanting to get going from nothing, you can use one of our example applications. It'll deploy directly into a Kubernetes managed Kubernetes cluster that you don't even have to know anything about. And you can just develop, do your pull requests, and it's going to deploy. And all the CI pipeline that you need for that is going to be there. Now, when you start talking about a larger organization who has invested in their own pipelines, their own infrastructure, that's where the Terraforms and the other more advanced concepts come into play which are absolutely required when you're a larger company. There's a lot more complexity to those. And that was one of the things that we had to figure out is like, hey, how do you make this simple for somebody that's just getting started, but adaptable enough that you know, a large organization could make use of this? Because as a business, there's probably more money on one side of that than on the other. So you know, I think our approach to this was to be kind of a binding agent um, and allow people to bring their own YAMLs, bring their own Terraforms, we can inject those and, and make those work. And for the simple apps, like, hey, let's just click an easy button and it, and it works.
3: Cool. Uh, Clayton, there you go. Easy button. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. <laughs>
2: <laughs> including, including static JavaScript frontends, uh, which are a whole other problem, you know, because you'll have your backend APIs and services and things. The JavaScript frontends actually, you know... It was it was interesting cuz originally we were like oh we probably don't need to do that like we could just run in a node container and you can just host your your your, your javascript um, but what we learned really quickly is that most most people are going to statically compile that put it into a CDN and host it with like cloudfront or cloudflare or something and so immediately we had to build basically a simple version of netlify and vercel into the product to do it like we had to build our own way to do that because a well-formed environment always has front-ends, back-ends, it has all of it. Um, so if you come to us and you've got a front-end uh, repo that's got, you know, static JavaScript, or a JavaScript React app next, whatever is, is, we'll detect that and automatically do the static JavaScript compilation, push it to, um, you know, a CDN and, and host it from there and then wire it all the way down into that namespace for your uh, application. So, you know, JavaScript, I have a, a soft spot in my heart because I built all the React front end for Release at the very beginning, um, and so it was one of the first things we worked on. Was like, hey, how do we get uh, front ends going too?
1: So <clears throat> let's say I'm I'm playing around with with Release, and I've done some stuff, and I've created a thousand environments. Uh, does Release also handle tracking and uh, taking down the environments? Or, or maybe even just resetting them back to good if I've gone in and messed with some settings because I was experimenting?
2: Yeah, um, great question. So yeah, I mean, it, you know, a big part of this is the ephemeral nature of an environment. Um, there's a default expiration on every environment uh, that you create. So you could set that seven days, 10 days. Um, if you don't use it, it'll just go away. You get an email like 24 hours in advance that says, hey, this environment's no longer going to be needed. If you don't do anything, we're going to delete it. Um, there's a whole bunch of like cost optimization angles to this too. But the reality is, if you're using an environment, we want it to stay. If you're not, we want it to go. And so we detect activity on those environments. And if they become dormant, we'll automatically go clean up all of those environments. But if you want to get them back, you just push to that branch again, and they'll just come back. So I think the idea here is that you know if you're going to have a big engineering team, they're all using it, you could easily run into that problem Clayton, where you have all of these environments that you know you've spun up, and your AWS bill or your Azure bill is going crazy, Uh, you've got to have a mechanism to kind of garbage collect all of that, and and that's something that we have spent a lot of time on. Um, You know, it's it's a common concern. You just don't want all that stuff laying around. So I think that's the other thing that if you end up you know kind of building one of these like we did before on your own, you end up dealing with like, oh, it's not as simple as just spin them up. You got to tear them all down. And there's a in that application template that i talked about there's a teardown section where if you have built you know let's say you built a uh, i don't know an emr cluster with terraform uh you would want to take that down if you weren't using it because <laughs> it could get very spendy very quickly so all of those kind of things are built in where you can kind of bring up bring down and and try to optimize along the way
1: okay so so in theory i could set it up so that Anytime a new branch was created and pushed to the server on repo X, it's going to generate an environment for that branch. So whoever's developing and pushing stuff into that branch can go and like validate against test scenarios or whatever. And then once the branch is merged in, nobody's touching the, the, uh, the branch environment anymore. It'll just go away after some, so, some amount of time.
2: Actually, when you merge, when you merge it automatically oh, delete- deletes okay. it so as soon as that branch no longer exists the em- so they basically mirror the branch so if the branch is alive it's going to be there when your pull request is merged it automatically cleans it up you could turn that off and then have the expiration deal with it but most of our users do it in that way where they'll do a pull request the environment is created as soon as they merge it just tears it down because you're done with it that could be useful yeah it it, it finds ways to be useful uh You know, because there's just, you know, some things that you can't see on your laptop. You've got to have the real AWS, you know, Azure infrastructure behind it. Data is another really big part of this equation. Um, Actually, it's one of the things that a lot of customers have not solved, even if they've built something internally, is like, hey, how do I get data into this environment? You know, how do you get sanitized data into it? We built this thing that, you know, on the AWS side, it basically takes RDS snapshots and Basically, it populates an RDS instance and then is just sitting and waiting. And as soon as a new environment is created, it checks out one of the available databases and it instantly attaches it to one of the environments that I created. So whatever that snapshot is, if it's a sanitized data set, if it's a seed data set, whenever your environment comes up, it'll check out the latest available database that's ready. And then behind the scenes, we'll go kick off the build of another instance so that you always have a ready and waiting database for the next environment to come up. It's actually one of the most challenging parts of building out an environment management system is like, what is the data import accessibility representative data of what I'm trying to like test against. So we have a lot of customers that will create data sets that are seed data, sanitized data, production data. And then through that application template, you could say, okay, when I create this environment, I want the sanitized data set so that when my developer has it, they're testing against sanitized data. So I think environments as a service includes not just building the environment, but like all the stuff around it, like the integration with GitHub, the integration with data, all of those parts are, you know, if you're going to do this, you've got to deal with all of it.
3: So one thing uh, that this seems to make sense, and uh, if you're spinning up all of the components that are a part of a system, um, And you know, if you've got your front end, your back end, your database, data layers, and whatever, you're spinning all those things up together, managing keys between the two, that's fine. What happens when you need to integrate with something that is outside of your control, that's outside of your system? How does that environment you're spinning up, and how do you manage like keys that are going into those environments?
2: So, a lot of our customers will use like, you know, their own key management system, whether that's Vault or, you know, Doppler is another one that's come up recently that we have to deal with. Um, and some of those tools are better than others in dealing with the dynamic nature of environments. The simplest way to deal with it is we do secrets management ourselves. And so we have an interface that let's say you spin up an environment, it comes up and the keys aren't correct for whatever reason. The, every environment gets a copy of all the keys and you can just adjust them. So if If you're like, oh, I need to integrate with this endpoint and I need a different key, each environment gets a a full copy of all of the default keys, everything that is needed. And then every environment you can just go adjust. So if you have something unique that you want to do to it, you can. Now, more advanced implementations will take advantage of environment environment secrets, (laughs) I guess if you want to call it that, that you can automatically pull in to those environments through a third party tool. And and we've done a bunch of integrations with uh, secrets management tools that do that. It's, it's always a little bit of a, like everybody's a snowflake here in how they've decided to do this. So there's a you know, several different approaches usually to solving that problem. And it really depends on like, what is the kind of standard way that you're thinking about doing that for yourself. And then we try to say, okay, we recommend using, you know, just use our secrets management tool or our integration with vault or our integration with Doppler is, is the way to go. Yeah. Cause that's another part of it. Data secrets, like all of these services. And then the other issue that you'll run into a lot is uh, so you're creating ephemeral environments of your app, but let's say you're connecting to like an OAuth, you know, you you use OAuth and you need to have an OAuth app. OAuth apps need a defined callback URL, right? Like you have to have a callback URL that's static. So you have to deal with those kind of problems. And the way that we've solved that is every environment gets a handle. So it's basically a unique ID for the environment. So when those host names come up, they're going to come up on a deterministic host name. So frontend sixfiguredeveloper com, whatever it is, the superhero... The superhero name would be the unique identifier to that environment. So, we actually, for release, we build release with release. We use superhero names for every environment handle. So, it's Hulk and Superman and all of these. So, when an environment comes up, the host names are derived based on a pattern with like Hulk in, you know, Hulk, Superman in the same place in that URL all the time. Well, now you go into your OAuth provider. And you create five OAuth apps, Hulk, Superman, Batman, whatever it is. And now when those environments come up, they always work. So there are are problems that you run into. And I think the the most interesting part of what we've had to solve for is most people have not designed their application to deal with more than usually like three environments. Staging, QA, development, and production. Maybe four. (laughs) Now all of a sudden, when you can manifest them out of thin air, you kind of have to think about. Oh well, what does that mean for me, right? And you know, that's that's part of what we offer as a company too when you go down the path of jumping in with releases, we'll help you figure that stuff out. Like a lot of there's a lot of discussion about environment variable conventions and, you know, things like that when a new customer comes on board. But it's really exciting because, you know, it opens up this pathway to faster development for our customers and it's really great.
3: What so uh, you know, it's sounds pretty really awesome. Um, what about like from a team standpoint and they're, you're, you're like, I, I'd like to get, we'd like to start using this. Like what, what, a, <laughs> what's that path forward there? Uh, who do I have to sell in my company to, to like allow us to start using this Is just, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. What, what's the, what's
2: the, the, yeah, I mean, anybody can come try it out on their own. Uh, there's, you know, if you go to the website, this is a little secret for your audience. Um, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a login button. You can just click it and sign up. Um, if you go to the homepage, it's gonna say, request a you know, quote or talk, get a demo. But if you just wanna try it out, click the login button, you connect with your GitHub uh, Bitbucket or uh, GitLab um, authentication and you'll be in. So if you wanna just try it out, a lot of times what we find is a developer finds us, they just wanna play around with it, try some example. We have, in our docs, we have really good example uh, walk-through applications that you can play with to kind of get a feel for it. So generally what I love is when a developer does that, says, okay, I see what this is. And then then they got, you know, usually because it's a big thing, you know, if you want to take this across your organization, the CTO or the VP of engineering or somebody's got to be involved. But we do have teams that have just decided, hey, our app is isolated. We're going to run it on our own. We'll just do it on our own. And it, it's, that you know, I love that idea. Um, you know, we get really good feedback from small teams and big companies that you know need it for one purpose it's a lot to try to take your entire infrastructure and try to do a project like this so generally we like to see like one app at a time and if it works then it'll it'll grow if not it won't
0: what about those organizations that uh you had mentioned that aren't as nimble that are are stuck in the 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 three environments the the dev the qa the prod i mean we, we, we don't work for any of those but you know there there are from from those that we've spoken with, there are those that are familiar with that type of environment. What's what's the story like on getting traction on, and, and learning from, and getting up to speed with environments on demand, and and what is the the mind shift required to to make that transition?
2: Usually, what we find is companies that are in that state you know you can go for a long time actually dealing with it that way and you'll be surprised at what kind of hoops people jump around to make that paradigm work at scale like i walked into an organization that had 300 people that figured out how to make the organization work around that that paradigm um, it's not very efficient like you're not moving very quick but you can make it work usually what will happen is a company will realize that hey i have a lot of highly paid software developers qa people product designers that aren't getting... We're not getting the, the, the value out of because there's a lot of wasted time. Um, and they'll come to the conclusion that, hey, look, if we had two staging environments it would be better than one. Or if we had multiple QA environments, we could have multiple QA things happening at once. And so you start to see the internal attempt to solve this usually as the, as the impetus for a company to think, I wonder if there's a better way to manage this than you know, us just trying to replicate the old way we did things more and more times. So usually an organization kind of feels the pain on their own um, and they've started to go down the path of, of trying to solve that problem with a bunch of different tools. They'll have their CI CD tools, they'll have their, you know, their uh, testing tools, they'll have their uh, you know, infrastructure as code if they've gotten there. And they're trying to cobble it together. And like we did, um, and when you're in the middle of that, you say, I wonder if anybody's tried to help make this easier. Um, and usually that's how somebody tends to find us. Is and, and if you go look at a lot of the things that we've written about, like on our blog, um, there, there are more pieces of information that you'll stumble across, like how to debug CrashLoop back off in a Kubernetes container. Like <laughs> You're going to deal with that, right? And so... Uh, that's still our number one, most traffic blog post we've ever had, uh, because it's just something that you'll deal with. And so as you're trying to go down the path of solving these problems, you're ultimately going to hit these obstacles and hurdles. Um, and you know, hopefully when they do that, they find us and, and, you know, say, maybe I shouldn't spend all my time trying to build this and just take something off the shelf. But if you don't, you want to do it on your own. We've got a lot of good content and things up there for, for people to. What about for
0: distributed systems? Does the story change at all for microservices or distributed monoliths? Or is it just a matter of thinking about what it is that environment represents from starting point A to to end point B of the domain of that service?
2: That's a really, really good question. And it comes up a lot. So when you're thinking about a large microservice application, um, spinning up 200 microservices on every pull request is overkill. Uh, you know, it's, it's usually not the right answer. But as a development team, you're probably working on one microservice. Um, you probably have two or three that you're closely coupled with. And so you might want, when you do a pull request, to bring up the service you're developing on and maybe two or three others that you have to bring along with you. But the 150 other ones, I just need to connect to them. and I need to be able to use it. Now... We have the concept of what we call permanent environments, which are more akin to a, a regular staging environment. But you could click a button and get one, um, and that will be your full implementation—the full, you know, 150 microservices. But as a developer, I probably want to develop against just the two or three or four that I need, and then I want that environment to back up to one of those kind of more permanent environments with the rest of the services. So you see the topology being something like one, two services maybe some shared services and then a shared environment that the rest connect to. And actually we see a lot of customers do, you know, shared environment, ephemeral environment for dependent services, and then developing locally against their, their, their service that they're working on. So there tends to be almost like this hierarchy of like, Hey, I'm developing this service. I need these two or three to kind of change along with me, but the rest of them can be in a shared environment. So there's this topology that release enables, that allows you to do that. Um, so, you know, I think it's something that, you know, as you start breaking out into microservice-based development, regardless of whether you you use release or not, the development experience against that starts to become really trickly, tricky really fast. Like, how do you deal with, you know, all of these engineers trying to use all the services at the same time, it, you know, You have the option with release to say, I don't want to do that. I'm going to create my own if you want to. And sure, you could spin up all of the 100 microservices if you wanted. But a lot of times you can get away with it the other way. And so there's flexibility within the platform that allows you to do that. It's a very, very common problem. It comes up all the time. Um, And uh, it's one of the things that we kind of saw early on that like, hey, like developing large microservice applications, Environments for those, actually, it's very tricky. It's a very, very tricky problem, and something that you know, I, I, I'll I'll say right now, it's not perfect the way we do it, and it's going to be a constant evolution. Um, but you know, I think we've got a good approximation to how to pull that off.
0: For for larger environments, or larger teams, or larger organizations, is there is there a concept of like centralized management, or or some kind of piece to to understand or know what the current state of the thousands upon thousands of potential environments we might have at, at any one given time.
2: Yeah. There's a, a dashboard that you can go into and kind of check out every environment that's been created. It's all in there. We do reports for customers on that stuff too. Yeah. As you start to get into uh, larger customers, they want inventories of this stuff. Like, okay, which developer created this, like which developer is costing me the most money spinning up environments. Like there's all sorts of things that you start to get into down the line when you go there. But yeah, that, the, the, the application itself has a view of like every environment that's in, that's been created, who created it, what branch it's on. So you kind of think of that as your you know your rudimentary view of it. Um, and then if you want deeper reports, we we kind of give those to customers too. Speaking of cost, what
0: what is the the business model? What what is how does release make money? And and what what types of figures might companies need to be planning for in order to to utilize? Uh, the the services or or the capabilities or, or what is the story around that?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, we've gone through, as any good startup would, lots of different pricing model permutations. <laughs> uh, it's never right. Like I'll tell you that upfront. Like you know, any company that says they figured pricing out, you know, they still have. I guarantee you, they're still uh, a long way to go. But I think you know, we've we've experimented with a couple of ideas. The one that um, most of our customers on is uh, basically a user-based licensing. So however many users are creating environments, you get charged per user. Uh, That tends to be the simplest for everybody. I mean, one of the things that we want to make sure is that no company feels like they have a limit to the number of environments they have to create. We actually have experimented with environment-based pricing pay us for what you use. And there's like pluses and minuses to that as well. But the reality is you should be able to use as many environments as your organization needs without thinking like, Ooh, I don't want to create this because it's going to get expensive. So that's ten- that tends to be, uh, you know, what the pricing model is. Um, and depending on the features that you, we have like a, a, starter professional and enterprise tier, the fee per user is a bit different based on the features that you need in the platform. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you the answer to what does it cost kind of as a, from the perspective of the CTO, as as I was the CTO of my last company, I'll say this: in a, uh, I would have paid seven figures to solve this problem a year, easy, because we had twelve DevOps engineers that were working on this basically nonstop. So there is a cost of like building, maintaining. You know, that from the perspective of a public company CTO, I would have spent a lot of money on it. Now, obviously. Smaller companies, startups, developers, you know that's not usually where they are, but I'll tell you that the value can you know approach that to a customer that has a large development organization that really needs to make them more efficient and environments are a bottleneck. Um, you know our average customers are paying you know anywhere between 50 and 200 bucks a user um, to to use the platform, so I mean you can get into it for as cheap as that, and then as you scale, it, it kind of scales like any normal enterprise type product would.
0: Very cool. Well, Tommy, you you, uh, you told us we would have plenty to talk about, and you certainly did not disappoint. Is, are there any topics that, that we missed or, or glossed over or anything that you want to be sure to, to let our listeners know about or, or be on the lookout for?
2: No, I mean, I think, I think you know, we kind of covered a lot. Um, you know, release is a good playground for developers, too. Um, I think that's another, you know, thing your audience might, you know, be interested in, like click that login button, create an account. If you're tinkering around with different technologies, you you want to get your toe in the water on Kubernetes and kind of just see what it might look like without going through all the hoops to make that work. If you spin up an application, it will go into a Kubernetes namespace and you're using Kubernetes even though you didn't go through the the battle of like trying to create a bunch of Kubernetes manifests to make it go. Um, so, the you know, I, I always tend to bring this back to like, what can we do for the indi- individual software developer and if you're like me I like to play around with stuff I like to check out cool repos on github and fire them up and see them work and you know we're a good playground for that kind of stuff so you know if you're an individual developer and you're just curious about you know kubernetes containers uh different applications you might find on github like it's you know it doesn't cost you anything to play around with it you can create two environments without any charge so Go in there and mess around play around with it and uh yeah it's 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 a good place to kind of just experiment i i've talked about it as like a sandbox like you can just kind of like see what's possible and you know then move from there if it's more interesting that's it
3: cool um you also mentioned so you mentioned the login uh secret secret login thing and then you also mentioned your blog are there any other resources that you might point our listeners to, to are looking to get started and sort of dig into release?
2: Um, I would say like check out, uh, uh, our social media accounts. We talked about this earlier. Uh, we're just release underscore hub on Twitter. Um, we're release hub on LinkedIn. Uh, we put stuff out there on a pretty regular basis. um, you can go to our GitHub, uh, awesome-release. I think that's a really good place to go. Our docs are really good too. Like, if you go to our, our site and you look at our docs, we've spent a lot of time and energy on that. Um, it's really important to have good docs for developers. So, I think if you really want to learn more, uh, the docs, and then we do have a newsletter that we send out once a month that kind of keeps people up to date. If you go to the blog and you hit the footer, there's a little subscribe to the newsletter down there. And that's not like we're not trying to pitch stuff. Usually it's just interesting content and stuff that we either created or find along the way that we pass along. You might see a couple of product feature updates on that, but it's not very sales pitchy. Um, so I think the newsletter is pretty good to, to follow along with, too.
1: Uh, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers?
2: Kind of back to this experimenting uh, idea like... I started as a C programmer, doing low-level firmware, um, doing BIOS work on X86 uh, machines, which was it's fun in its own way. Um, then I went into C programming, C++ programming. Uh, I didn't know any of that stuff, so I just you know rolled my sleeves up and through hard knocks, figured out how to do it. Um, we ended up building a lot of our early startups in Rails. I didn't know anything about Rails, and so I think my feedback is just constantly try new stuff, um, and you, you you never know where it's going to take you. Uh, I I've been taken into a parental controls company, and I was writing software doing Win pcap low level pa- packet sniffing, which brought me back to my firmware days. But the server was running in Rails. And so I had to span the gap on both of those two things. And the mentality that experimenting and like learning new stuff, like even if you don't directly need it today, it just gives you this really broad perspective about computer science and and programming that I found in every case, in every job, even being a CEO has been helpful. Being a CTO has been helpful because I can take the understanding of the low level all the way down to the low level. And then understand how to translate that to people that aren't technical um and so i think that's just been through a, a a career of willingness and openness to try new things uh be uncomfortable for a while let you know you're gonna be terrible at the thing you do at the very beginning um but if you do it enough you, you do finally get good at it and so like i'm probably like our development team would probably tell you don't touch any of the react code that that i wrote but it started a company that's funded by CRV and Sequoia now, right? So it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, And if I wouldn't have rolled my sleeves up and said, Hey, I'll figure out react. Like we wouldn't be here. So uh, I think that mentality of constantly challenging and pushing yourself into, into scary places has, has always served me very well. Um, And it started with like just trying different technologies. And now it's like, you know, going into uncharted territories with a business. And so, you'll never go wrong there. You know, it's always a path to greater and bigger opportunities for you.
3: Awesome. Uh, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up, uh, with what you're working on?
2: Uh, yeah. So mostly it's just on Twitter. Um, I'm, uh, Tommy McClung at Tommy McClung, uh, on Twitter. Um, I do write a lot of the blog posts on our, our release blog uh, itself, but Twitter is usually where I do things. And then LinkedIn, I'll post up there every once in a while. You can search for my name up there. You'll you'll find me. All right. Great. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you so much for
0: joining us today. It was a, a, a blast getting to, to meet you and talk with you and learn all about release.
2: Awesome. Thanks. Hopefully it was fun for you guys too. That was
1: Tommy McClung, a software engineer by trade and multiple-time entrepreneur. Tommy was the CTO at Truecar for a number of years and is co-founder and CEO of Release. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes.
0: Find show notes, blog posts, and more at SixFigureDev.com.
3: And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast,
0: helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway.
3: I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John
2: Ash.